welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. And today joining me is Professor Richard Lyon. Richard is a Oh, it's a long list. A professor of pre-hospital emergency medicine at University of Surrey. Uh, he's a consultant in emergency medicine at Edinburgh and clinical lead for the Medic One team there. He's a HEMS doctor with Kent Surrey Sussex Air Ambulance. Did his doctoral thesis in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and now sits on the Resus Council's executive committee. He served with the fire service, the British Army, and is now a member of International Rescue, which I think makes him a Thunderbird. But he's most recently been involved with developing guidelines for the management of traumatic cardiac arrest and is in today to chat to us about that. Richard, many thanks for joining us. You're very welcome, Dave. Thanks very much for the invitation to have me uh, on the the podcast. So I guess to start off with, let's try and pin down a, a definition about traumatic cardiac arrest, what it is that we're talking about here. Absolutely. And that's a really key question, Dave, as we'll come on to. So Traumatic cardiac arrest, or TCA, as you'll often hear it referred to, is when an out-of-hospital arrest occurs and it's thought that trauma is the origin of that arrest. So different to an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that has a medical origin, which we commonly associate with myocardial infarction and someone going into ventricular fibrillation, for example, but obviously lots of other causes, you know, respiratory arrest leading to cardiac arrest or stroke or the like. A TCA, a traumatic arrest, is when someone has some form of major trauma uh, that ultimately or usually quite quickly leads to that person going into cardiac arrest. And it's probably one of the first things that's really worth actually just a bit of a discussion because for all of our responders, the quick question is, of course, well, how do you know? Because you're often faced with a patient that is in a cardiac arrest state and you have to respond to that person. And I think the first thing to say, and one of my take homes is you have to not assume anything. So even when you're driving to the scene and you get a report that someone has fallen off a roof and is in traumatic cardiac arrest, it's very easy for us to jump to the conclusion that they have had a cardiac arrest because of a head injury as they've hit the deck or they've landed and they've got severe internal bleeding. But of course, What we tend to forget, and we can have a chat about some of the evidence, is that, well, what happens if that person had had a heart attack on the roof and went into VF, and that was actually the cause of why they fell off. So it's really important to keep an open mind as to why someone is in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and there's both medical and traumatic causes of that. I guess the sort of the logical follow-on from that is by cardiac arrest, we're referring presumably to a, a state where there's no palpable pulse, but sometimes in trauma, you get patients who are still breathing and still have signs of life, but just are in that kind of low flow state where they don't seem to be generating enough pressure to, to feel a pulse. Absolutely. And, and that's really important. And I think one of the studies we actually did down on the air ambulance was looking at that because... When we get a call saying a patient's in traumatic cardiac arrest, certainly historically, the kind of first reaction is a bit of a a sigh and why are we going to this? And the word futility seems to come up 
quite a lot. And if you look at, you know, the evidence, it's a TCA survival rate. It's sort of quoted between, you know, some studies say it's zero and no one will survive. But certainly the highest you'll see is in the order of two or three percent. But what we found was an absolutely fascinating observation that shows the general public are actually very bad at diagnosing cardiac arrest. And we know that from, you know, work in medical arrest. But say a car crash happens on a remote Scottish road and someone's sitting unconscious at the wheel and might be trapped. And the first 999 call gets placed. And that bystander says, I don't think they're breathing. I think they might be dead is a, is a common description. And we think they're in traumatic arrest. And you get the call saying you're going to a traumatic arrest, TCA. Well, actually, what we found from one of the studies is 46%, so almost half, and I like to think of it as half. In half of the calls that you get to a traumatic cardiac arrest, the patient is not actually in traumatic cardiac arrest. And that's really important. So that might well be due to your very correct observation that the patient may be, you know, deeply unconscious or they may be breathing abnormally. And I think the other key thing is they can be in what's called a low flow state. So you're absolutely right. The definition of a traumatic cardiac arrest is when we can't feel a pulse on that person. So we can't essentially feel a carotid pulse. But what we do know is it's perfectly possible for that patient to be having some sort of profusion of course crucially brain profusion underlying that and we just can't feel it the blood pressure is just too low for us to feel with our fingers but actually that perfusion is really important and can mean that the brain can be perfused for a considerably longer length of time than you, know, you may assume and that, that's particularly true in certain cases of traumatic arrest and stabbings where the heart has an injury and has a cardiac tamponade would be a good example of that. So I think one of the things that has really struck me in the last few years is when you're responding to a cardiac arrest with a potential origin of trauma is that you have to go into that thinking there's a good chance when I get there, this patient is not actually in TCA. And of the ones that won't, what we found is 67%, so two-thirds, needed a critical advanced pre-hospital intervention, defined as needing either emergency anesthesia or thoracostomy or blood product transfusion, or even in rare cases, a resuscitative clamshell or thoracotomy. So when we're going to a TCA, it's really important, I think, that we don't have the sort of historic mentality of they're all dead. Why am I going to this? And actually flip that 180 degrees on its head and say, right, I'm going to someone that is critically unwell, critically injured, and there's a very high chance that my basics response interventions could be really meaningful to this patient. What's the sort of, what's the burden of work here? Are, are we talking tens of cases a year, hundreds of cases a year, thousands? I think it obviously depends on you know where you live. So we know that you know major trauma is the leading cause of death in in young adults, and we know that major trauma is essentially directly related to your population. So down on the air ambulance, where I have the privilege of working in the southeast, you know we fly to about two and a half thousand missions every year, and I'd have to get the statistics. We're probably looking at in the region of a traumatic arrest one to two times a week, something like that. 
Now, if you think about rural Scotland, clearly it's going to be a much rarer event than that. And I think for most of our responders in Scotland, you would, you know, you would only anticipate seeing a patient in traumatic arrest, you know, once every few years, something of, of that order. Which in itself presents its problems because we're then skill faded and, and not getting that regular exposure when it comes to making those critical interventions. Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly one of the reasons that myself and a team at London Air Ambulance when I was working there, you know, saw the need to come up with an algorithm for this. And I think, thankfully, the decision making around traumatic arrest is actually relatively straightforward. And actually, the nice thing about having an algorithm is that, you know, when you're going to one of these cases, you can just follow the algorithm and it's important to follow the algorithm. And that's why we deliberately came up with the hot mnemonic that we can talk about um, to give responders, you know, exactly that a guideline that they can work their way through. And importantly, it can be applied not just to the patient in cardiac arrest, but also someone in a peri-arrest state, which is you know, essentially even better if they've not yet arrested. And by employing the hot algorithm, hopefully we can prevent them from going into cardiac arrest and subsequently dying. Just before we dive into the algorithm itself, I want to just pick your brains on, on the rationale behind why we're managing this differently from any other arrest. You identified the differences between medical arrests and traumatic cardiac arrests, but why the difference in management? Absolutely. So I think just to round off the, that first discussion about the medical bit, what we've seen and what we've seen in the from studies we've done is that around about 10% of patients, if we go back to the guy that fell off the roof, will have a medical cause. So it's just worth having, you know, that sort of seed in your mind that could this be a medical cause. So that's really important because what we don't want to miss is is the patient that is that lying there in cardiac arrest and actually just needs a shock from a defibrillator because then they're in a shockable rhythm. Now, having sort of excluded that aware, you know, pretty sure that medical case isn't. If we think about the causes of our cardiac arrest, so the causes of you know, cardiac arrest, the four H's and the four T's, every patient goes into a cardiac arrest as a result of an H or a T. And we boil that down into trauma we're really left with three causes in terms of the pathophysiology as to why the heart arrests in trauma. And that's the basis of the hot algorithm. So hypovolemia, oxygenation or hypoxia, and tension pneumothorax. And I would probably just add on cardiac tamponade to that, which is a very rare but important occurrence, but usually occurs from penetrating trauma. So just to kind of go through some of those, hypovolemia and hypoxia are clearly the biggest in trauma. So you can, from bleeding, clearly whether that's internal or external bleeding, lead to hemorrhagic shock. And we know that hemorrhagic shock is a major cause of death in trauma. That leads to hypovolemia, bleeding out scenario, whether it's you know blood on the floor or four more and trying to prevent that bleeding as early as possible and prevent a critical hypovolemic state arising where there's just not enough blood in the circulation to allow the heart to beat is a crucial early intervention. Then hypoxia is another one that's very high up the list. And we can talk about you know, the origins of the hypoxia because one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is traumatic brain injury and specifically uh, traumatic brain apnea that would be worth discussing when we talk about whether CPR is warranted. So 
if there's not enough oxygen being delivered to your heart, clearly it can enter a cardiac arrest state. And then the specifics. So direct chest trauma can lead to attention pneumothorax, which is very easily correctable and very easily treated in the pre-hospital setting. And of course, it's disastrous if a patient dies just of an isolated tension pneumothorax because it's, you know, it is so easy to treat. And then, as I mentioned, tamponade. So when we're going to a traumatic arrest, in some ways, it's much more straightforward than a medical arrest where we have to work through lots of differentials and consider lots of causes as to why that patient is in arrest. And in trauma, we can really hone it down quite quickly to hypovolemia, hypoxia, tension pneumothorax, and tamponade. Which sort of parks us nicely in, in the algorithm and the concept of sort of a hot resuscitation. Can you talk us through the sort of the practicalities of an approach to a hot resuscitation? So when you're faced with a trauma patient who's in cardiac arrest or peri-arrest, the first thing that it's important to just ask yourself is, do they have penetrating trauma to the chest or torso, essentially? If the answer to, to that is yes, and they've gone into cardiac arrest within a reasonable time frame, and, and that's always difficult to judge, partly because the information is scant, but they really need to have lost cardiac output within about 10 minutes, they would be a candidate for a resuscitative thoracotomy, so a clamshell thoracotomy, aiming to look for and address cardiac tamponade. So that's the first question is to sort of very quickly run through, and it's quite binary because it's pretty obvious as to whether a patient has been stabbed or not. You usually get that from the history. But what I would just ask is, you know, you just need to think when you get there, if there's reports they've been stabbed, it's really important that you look at that patient, you know, from head to toe, including their back, and just try and work out where those penetrating wounds are and whether they would be a candidate for a thoracotomy. I'm guessing that for our basics responders, the vast majority of us are not about to, to whip out our tough cuts and open chests as a jobbing GP or, or rural practitioner. Is there anything that we can do for these guys? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. I think Thankfully, in rural Scotland, these are, these occurrences are vanishingly rare, and it's very unlikely that you're going to come across it. But what I would say is, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be afraid of the procedure. The hardest part of the procedure is the decision to do it. I think if they do have a tamponade, you know, firstly, just following the rest of the algorithm through, and then almost kind of coming back to that. And if you haven't got ROSC with some of the basics, it's, it's definitely worth considering and seeking, you know, some top cover support or phoning a friend. I certainly wouldn't rule out doing it because it can be an absolutely life-saving procedure. But I think actually just having, you know, the hot algorithm at the front of your mind and if there's, you know, you're not sure or, you know, you just want to sort of, you know, park that for a second because you're not trained to do it, there's certainly an awful lot, you know, you can do in terms of hopefully gaining a ROSC on this person. So the next part of the algorithm is just to think about that medical cause as we've discussed and just think, do we need to quickly check whether we need to do a heart rhythm? But I would not routinely, as a matter of course, start checking the heart rhythm at this stage because it's going to delay things. The next step is to try and simultaneously address the hot aspect. So we're simultaneously trying to address the hypovolemia, the oxygenation and the tension. So what does that mean practically? We just take each of those in turn. So how do we address hypovolemia? Well, any external hemorrhage should be immediately controlled. And that's usually quite obvious because you can see the bleeding. And this stage, if it's that critical, a tourniquet should be applied if the bleeding is on a limb or a trauma dressing should be applied on the torso or 
direct pressure, whatever you can essentially to immediately stem that bleeding. Now then it's worth realizing that of course a lot of the hemorrhage in, occurs internally. So for example, any major trauma should have a pelvic splint applied as soon as possible as part of your hot algorithm. And what that does is reduce the volume of the pelvis and it reduces the bleeding into the pelvis. Again, a quick look should tell you is if any of the long bones, so particularly a humerus or a femur is fractured because a displaced humeral or femoral fracture can have significant bleeding around it. And just reducing those limbs, very practically pulling those limbs out to length. So getting someone to hold onto the ankle and pull the leg straight is what should happen. And ideally that should be delegated to someone else. So you as the responder uh, are going to have to do a few more medical interventions. So if you can you know, ask a police officer or a fireman or even a bystander just to pull on the broken leg and reduce a femoral fracture, that's important. Now, as part of hypovolemia, of course, we want to try and get intravenous or intraosseous access. I'd say in the TCA state, actually just needs speeders of the essence. So usually an intraosseous needle is the way to go. And placing the intraosseous needle in the humeral head is probably beneficial because it's obviously closer to the heart, can deliver fluid directly into the central circulation. And the risk is putting it down into a leg is that, you know, there may be fractures in the way and bleeding may be occurring intra-abdominally and actually the fluid that you're giving into a leg could, you know, just be, you know, exsanguinating without actually getting to where it needs to go. So the key points about addressing the hypovolemia are control the hemorrhage, pace a pelvic splint, reduce any fractures that you see are visible and gain intra venous intraosseous access and then think about giving a fluid bolus then the next part is the oxygenation so clearly in the first sentence we want to we want to give oxygen and in trauma and especially in tca we want to give as much oxygen as we can now in the patient that is truly in tca actually uh, securing an airway and placing a supraglottic you know, putting an eye gel down probably the best way to do that. Wouldn't necessarily say that intubation is needed straight away. Obviously, that's a, a technical skill that takes a bit of time. You need to set up a kit dump. Just putting the eye gel straight in, connecting it to a bag valve mask, and starting to ventilate that patient is absolutely fine. And of course, very quick. And again, once that's in, that can quite nicely be delegated to someone else. So put the eye gel in yourself, connect up the bag valve mask, turn on the oxygen, and then ask someone to squeeze the bag. And then the last part, the tension pneumothorax, is about definitively excluding the fact that the patient could have a tension. And in the traumatic arrest state, it can be quite difficult to you know, accurately diagnose that. And as we mentioned before, the last thing we want to do is miss it and have someone die of an unrecognized tension. So this is where, as a responder, you're probably going to be doing the most sort of advanced intervention and that just put two needles into the patient's chest as if you're doing a needle chest uh, decompression in the midclavicular line in the second intercostal space or if you've been trained and are happy to do a thoracostomy a small open scission in the fifth intercostal space in the mid axillary line just as you would be doing to insert a chest drain is better it's better because it uh, has a much higher in incidence of working needles tend to get blocked and kink and actually in about half of cases the needles just aren't long enough to reach the pleural space so doing thoracostomy is preferable because it allows you just to put a finger into the pleural space 
into the chest cavity and make a definitive hole and check the status of the lungs. Is the lung up? Is the lung down? And that guarantees that any tensioned air is allowed to come out and relieves any tension. And we've definitively ruled that out as a cause. And I think one of the nice things about the HOT algorithm is, one, it's relatively straightforward to implement. It's just about working through those steps I discussed. You do need to rattle through them as quickly as possible. And one of the questions that often comes up is around chest compressions. And it's not possible, obviously, to continue chest compressions whilst undertaking some of these procedures, particularly things like you know, thoracostomies. And that you're better off just pausing the chest compressions because you think chest compressions alone are not going to get a ROSC in these patients to complete the hot interventions. And it's very what I call bandwidth liberating to have done it because now you can definitively say, um, well, we've done as much as we can to address these hot causes before going on to think about you know, what steps next. It's going to be three minutes of, uh, of pretty frenetic activity. So once you've addressed your hot resuscitation and you get to that kind of awkward moment where you think, right, okay, that's me at the end of, of all the hot stuff, fluids going in, I've controlled bleeding internally and externally, provided oxygenation down a, a sort of half decent airway, and I've put a finger on each side of the chest. That question of CPR comes up again. Is it worth starting CPR in these guys? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you're in doubt about what to do next, just start CPR again. And I think a lot of the anxiety around doing CPR in these patients is around doing CPR on patients who are massively hypovolemic and compressing a heart that is essentially empty and doing damage. Now, these patients we know have the poorest chance of outcome. So in the pre-hospital setting, if you have had a cardiac arrest that's due to hypovolemia, particularly for our responders who are not going to have immediate access to blood products, the outcome is going to be universally you know, fatal for these patients that have actually bled out. Now, a large proportion of patients who have a traumatic arrest, I think, will have done so because of a condition called traumatic brain apnea. And I think this is under-recognized, certainly under-reported, and very likely to be seen by our responders. So a classic example would be a motorcyclist on a remote or rural Scottish road comes off his bike at high speed and hits his head. Now, what we know is that head injury can cause respiratory arrest and can certainly lead to cardiac arrest. And it's not immediately going to be clear when you get to the scene of that motorcyclist what's caused it. So you quite rightly go through your hot algorithm, you might not identify any significant injuries and you may just want to check he's clearly not you know, had a VF arrest at the wheel of his motorbike. But actually, what that patient needs, having secured his airway and given him some oxygen, is he needs chest compressions. He needs that oxygen to be delivered to his brain. He needs to have his brain perfused again with oxygenated blood. And that may well get a ROSC. And these patients have a very good chance of making a meaningful recovery. And that's why if you come across someone like this, actually doing CPR, just basic, you know, mouth-to-mouth CPR, has a very good chance of, of a good outcome. So I'd say, if in doubt, just do chest compressions and stick to your usual practice, having completed the hot interventions, and you won't go wrong doing that. 
I think if you have a bit more time, a bit more experience, and you can think, right, what is the likely cause of this arrest? And can I address things further? That may lead to subtly different practice. So for example, if a red trauma team arrive, so if uh, the helicopter arrives from Glasgow, or you interact with Tayside trauma team or Medic 1, they may well transiently pause chest compressions to load that patient up with a blood transfusion, get that heart filled up again before doing CPR. And that's really the origin of the sort of, uh, I guess, debate and anxiety around chest compressions in traumatic arrest. It's all around the hypovolemic patient. But as I said, there's very good reason to do it on other patients. So if in doubt, don't be afraid to resume normal CPR. I guess particularly given our kind of audience of predominantly rural practitioners in Scotland, the timelines mean that outcomes for these guys are not going to be fantastic. So once we've excluded the the easily reversible, it gives us a sense of being able to do something for the guys who are left. No, absolutely. And that's really important. And we have to also remember our colleagues in the Scottish Ambulance Service, particularly in the remote and rural areas, will probably never have seen one of these cases before. And it's an awkward feeling, I have to say, to not be doing CPR because it's not something we're used to. And it has to be done, you know, very carefully in terms of decision making. So I think the take home for me is do what you would normally do in terms of a medical resuscitation, but overlay that with just getting your hot interventions done and a small pause in CPR to do that is absolutely worthwhile. And what we're hoping for in in remote and rural Scotland is that you know, the patient has one of those immediately addressable, reversible causes. So, you know, has a tension that we get release on or has a traumatic brain apnea that when the brain gets some oxygen again, the heart kicks in. We have to just be, you know, pragmatic and accepting of the fact that those patients that have suffered you know, massive hemorrhage or you know, have an unsurvivable injury like a complete transection of their cervical cord or an overwhelming brain injury or, you know, a disrupted aorta or something like that, that there is currently no magical intervention that can save these people when they're in, you know, a very remote location a long way from a trauma surgeon. So let's take the best case scenario first. We do our hot interventions, we maybe give them a a cycle or two of CPR, and then we get signs of life. Without disappearing into into full post-ROS care, um, is there anything extra we need to do with these folk? No, I think the key thing there is, of course, you know, speed is of the essence. So having done your hot interventions, you've got your ROSC, you've done everything you can do, and you've done a great job to get that ROSC. What the patient needs now is more advanced intervention, and that usually needs to be guided by what their injuries are. So, And to do that, we often need uh, a CT scan or we need some ultrasound scanning. We need to pinpoint what the cause of the arrest is. And remember, in trauma, surgery is usually the next step. So whether it's trauma surgery to control bleeding, whether it's trauma surgery to you know address a critical head injury. So getting the patient to hospital is of key importance whilst trying to maintain that ROSC, which is likely to be very, very fragile. So that's where actually just having you know good local knowledge about what your trauma pathway is. And of course, next year in Scotland, as we see all the trauma networks go live, this will become even more meaningful as to the decision making we need to think about. And usually in Scotland, this will involve going to the nearest hospital for stabilization, but it could also mean bypassing the nearest hospital or going straight to one of the four trauma centers 
depending on your geography and depending on what transport modalities you know are available to but i think having got the rosk no dilly daddling on scene is the key and get moving towards a hospital that can definitively treat your patient so treating these guys with uh, with turbo injected diesel absolutely absolutely diesel or you know aviation fuel if uh, you're really stuck and that's where again just thinking ahead and requesting assistance early is the way to go so very often for example on the air ambulance we'll launch early to these patients just so we're in the air we're heading towards the scene and we're hoping that if they get a ROS that's great we're you know many miles closer than if we were still sitting on the ground so don't be afraid to sort of shout early for help and it's much easier to get rolling and stand that help down if you know the outcome is unfortunately futile. I guess the other advantage from my point of view is that it also gives me an avenue to talk to a a pre-hospital consultant and to get that decision-making support through the trauma desk. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's really important as well, because if you think about the four trauma centers that, you know, we'll be going to trying to make an early decision about where to get these patients is really important. So clearly the bleeding patient that is very fragile, just needs blood product transfusion and needs to get to a surgeon as quickly as possible. On the other side, the motorcyclist that we went to that had the isolated traumatic brain injury that is now breathing again may well be quite stable from a cardiovascular point of view. And, you know, numbers on your monitor may all look not too bad. And actually that patient might not be quite as time critical in terms of, you know, needing surgery and blood, but would be much better off managed in a neurosurgical center. And you may well elect to, you know, bypass the local hospital and continue on to, you know, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Glasgow, uh, Dundee for earlier neurosurgical intervention. So absolutely speaking to Trauma Desk, having a conversation with a top cover consultant, you know, where to go and how to get there is, is a very good idea, Dave. And presumably all the sort of standard trauma care is appropriate. So I'm thinking here, tranexamic acid, uh, applying splints and tractioning things once you've got the patient back into rusk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I tend to do is just kind of revisit that hot algorithm. So making sure that you're still maintaining that oxygenation. If there's any doubt about the tension, remember thoracostomies can be refingered. Now is the time to do a you know, quick secondary survey and make sure that you've splintered fractures that you've missed. Absolutely. Um, get your tranexamic acid in as quickly as possible. And then remember packaging that patient up. So I tend to like to think of these patients as like broken eggs and that you need to be treating them very gingerly. So particularly when it comes to bleeding, the first clot is the best clot. And what we don't want to be doing is handling these patients roughly and making that you know clot fling off and the, for the bleeding to start. So making sure they're packaged skin to scoop, making sure that you've got everything splintered. And then, of course, crucially, especially important for Scotland, is keeping them warm. So we know that patients that get cold, you know, hypothermia directly contributes to coagulopathy. So actually, once you've got your ROS, done your interventions, get them packaged up quickly, skin to scoop, get them in an ambulance, get the heating on, get them covered up uh, with as many blankets as you can and try and maintain that body temperature because they get very cold very, very quickly. Okay, let's come back to our trauma patient, and this time we've completed our hot interventions, and there's been no change. Is there any value now in in looking at putting on your pads and having a look at rhythm? Is there anything else that we can use to start to make decisions about futility and when we might consider stopping? Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know the decision to stop is 
is obviously a very hard one. And in TCA, it's a common one. And I think our role as responders is actually to take sort of charge of that decision-making process. And again, seeking top cover support is absolutely fine. But certainly our colleagues in the ambulance service will not be used to having to make that decision. And what we don't want to do is, you know, subject the patient and the crew to a long journey with potentially ongoing CPR to a hospital when the case is clearly futile, because that is, you know, not good for anyone and can put the crew at risk. So having completed your hot algorithm and maybe started CPR, you've bought yourself a little bit of time now to think, right, hopefully, what is the cause of this or what pathology are we dealing with i think putting the pads on uh, can be helpful at this stage because certainly i like to think of you know a heart that is asystolic and a heart that has been asystolic for a considerable time the outcome is even poorer than of any of the other heart rhythms so certainly asystole is a very bad prognostic sign and i always feel a bit more comfortable in sort of calling the asystolic patient because it's pretty clear Certainly the VF we've mentioned and you would get on and, you know, start shocking the patient. The slightly tricky one is the PEA. And I like to think of PEA as a heart that's trying to live and it's just not generating a pulse. And that's where if you see the PEA, I think, well, right, what else can we do having done the hot algorithm? And I might at this point think about giving the you know fluid bolus over the next few minutes, even if it's just crystalloid to see if that makes a difference. But actually just sort of watching that rhythm and certainly the PEA that is slowing down and is becoming agonal is a poor prognostic indicator. I think another very useful thing to think about at this stage is to put on end tidal. So actually put the catnograph on the eye gel, wire it up to the monitor, the ambulance service monitor, and, and see what the end tidal carbon dioxide reading is. And again, this is quite useful in terms of just guiding things so you know if you've got an end tidal that is very low so certainly less than two and definitely less than one the outcome is usually quite sort of futile there you've got even with cpr generating such you know poor cardiac output poor delivery of gas to the tissues that's another you know sign that things are are probably not going to end well And I think one of the things I I think is really important here is kind of forecasting. So not being in a rush to say, right, the patient's dead and looking at your clock and noting the time. What I'll often say is, right, we've done our hot interventions. We're going to give some TXA for what it's worth, even in a rest. We're going to give a couple of liters of fluid. We're going to look at their heart rhythm. If we've got an ultrasound, we're going to, we're trained to do that, might have a quick look at the heart of the ultrasound. And actually, if we have not got a ROSC in two or three cycles of CPR at that point, I think we should terminate the resuscitation. And then everyone is on the same page and you've got just a sort of a few minutes of team buy-in and team thought to think about, is there anything else that you should do? Maybe using that time to speak to top cover to say you've done everything. And then importantly, not being afraid to say, right, you know, we have done everything. You've consulted with the team. You've made sure that every intervention has been done. You've got all the information that you can. And then terminating the resuscitation at that point, you know, in the interest of the patient and all the rescuers concerned. I think one thing that I've changed in my practice over the last year or two is that I've sort of put my hands up and said, you know, I I just can't remember everything in these situations. And I've started to generate my own little checklists and tick lists. So I, I carry one for traumatic cardiac arrest and I've used it a couple of times now just to make sure that I've ticked all of my boxes and that I've covered everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
I tend to just keep it really simple. I just tend to uh, to keep it to that the hot algorithm. You know, have we addressed every bit of the hypovolemia? Have I given them oxygen? Am I sure they've got the airway in the right place? And have I definitively excluded that tension? And then have I checked their rhythm? Have we, you know, given them every intervention that we can with the only additional one after that is really the fluid. And if you've done all of those things and you've still not got a ROS, there really is nothing else that, you know, you're going to be able to do. It's lovely to hear it sort of simplified down to that extent, because it, particularly for folk who are not involved with trauma patients that regularly, it's a pretty daunting subject. Certainly, it's very daunting. I think what I find very reassuring is is the decision making is actually very binary. And I think if you think about it in terms of binary terms, and you can almost run through the algorithm in your head whilst you're you know going to the scene, and keep it like you said, very very simple. So. I usually say, you know, have they been stabbed? Yes, no. Could it be medical? Yes, no. Then just do the hot algorithm as we've talked about. You know, did it do anything? Yes, no. Have they got ROSC? Did I find anything? Have they got signs of hypovolemia? Yes, no. Have they got attention? Yes, no. And actually, when you keep it to binary and sort of work out where you are in your algorithm and what you think the most likely causes it does make the decision making i find a lot easier whereas you know lots of other things you you can't do that with a medical arrest for example you've got a long long list of causes but trying to keep things simple will mean that you can go through it quickly go through it effectively and know exactly where you are on your algorithm and not get confused brilliant we've been getting all of our presenters to give us three top tips for basic responders to take away with them to kind of summarize what they've been talking about, what would be your suggestions for, for the management of traumatic cardiac arrest? Absolutely. So I think number one, don't assume they're in traumatic arrest. When you hear a TCA call, think this is highly likely to be a critically injured person that needs my intervention and go into that case positively thinking that you know, you're going to create a survivor and that it's not futile. Number two would be know the hot algorithm. Know it well, know it inside out, practice it and just stick to the addressing the hot reversible causes quickly, simultaneously, as rapidly and effectively as you can. And thirdly, just remember the possibility that it's a medical origin. So remember, 10% of these cases actually could have a medical cause. And just don't forget to check that they're not in VF and might just need a shock. And that might be getting you the ROSC. So don't assume it's always trauma in origin could well be medical. Richard, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to chat to us and sharing with us you know, that wealth of experience and and really simplifying, as I say, what is quite an intimidating subject down to its key components. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Thanks very much. Take care. Take care now.